Welcome to the Breakout Growth Podcast, where Sean Ellis interviews leaders from the world's fastest growing companies to get to the heart of what's really driving their growth. And now, here's your host, Sean Ellis. Right. In this episode of the Breakout Growth Podcast, I interview Henry Shook, CEO of Zoom Info on the heels of their NASDAQ IPO in June. Now, this was the largest tech IPO this year, and they're currently valued at about $13 billion. Henry tells the story of the company's founding and merger in 2019 to form today's Zoom Info. So he led one of the entities, he pulled together with another entity, and today it's a it's a pretty big company. So combining data, tech, and insights, the platform is used by about 200,000 sales and marketing professionals at 16,000 companies to help them find their next best customer. Henry's side of the business uh, was bootstrapped through 2014, And so he was able to leverage really an automated sales and marketing process to drive breakout growth in a really efficient way because they were bootstrapped so early. Today, the overall company is about 1,300 employees. And despite a sales-driven model, they have built really an always experimenting mindset using data at every step in the customer journey to power growth. So in that sense, it looks a lot like a consumer business, but it's really a B2B business that's had incredible growth and we'll all be able to learn something from this. So before we get started with the interview, you may have seen that I officially launched gopractice.io this past week on Product Hunt with my partner, Oleg Yakubinkov, and he's a former data scientist at Facebook. So he really knows his stuff and is a great compliment to my experience. We believe that this immersive simulator is the best possible way to learn a data-driven approach to growth and product management. So go check out gopractice.io. But for now, let's jump in with Henry Shook, CEO of Zoom Info. Hi, Henry. Welcome to the Breakout Growth Podcast. Hey, Sean. Thank you for having me. Yeah, I'm super excited. I think you're the first uh, recent IPO CEO that I've had on the podcast. And so this is an ex- exciting milestone for me personally to be able to dig into something where, you know, for, for the pre, pre-public companies, it's, uh, you, you're often looking at hard to read signals in terms of growth rates where a public company, it's, it's all out there. And you guys have clearly uh, achieved some amazing numbers to get to the point where you could go public. So congratulations on that. And uh, I'm excited to dig into how the heck you've driven all of that growth. But I think we should start with what Zoom Info is and, and really how it, how it came about. Sure. Well, thank you. And I'm excited to be here. Hopefully I can impart some tips uh, that we've used along the way that, uh, that the listeners can grab and take with them. So uh, what ZoomInfo is, is, is it's a platform of data, technology, and insights that's used by sales and marketing professionals, over 200,000 of them at 16,000 companies. And it's used by them to find their next best customer. And so what that means is they come into our platform, they're able to identify companies that look like their best, uh, their best customers, and then they're able to identify the people at those companies who make the buying decisions for their products and services. And then they're able to have the contact information to engage with those folks. And then we're layering insights on top of that so that they know not only uh, what companies to reach out to and who to reach out to at those companies, but they also know what to say when they reach out 
and when exactly to reach out. And so we work with uh, B2B companies, and so companies that sell to other businesses. And we work with everything from Fortune 100, many Fortune 100 companies, to uh, a pecan exporter in Alabama, and everything in between. Mm-hmm. Wow. <laughs> and then, so I, I think one of the things that's really interesting with, with your company is that um, not that long before your IPO, you merged two businesses together. So I believe you were on the Discover org side before. Um, it would be great to get a little context on how the businesses came together and what's different now that they're together. Sure. Yeah. So I founded uh Zoom Info, the company, the company that exists today. I founded it as Discover Org in 2007. I was 23 years old, and I was in uh, finishing my first year in law school at Ohio State University in Columbus, Ohio. Uh, put $25,000 on my credit card and started this business, which was really kind of an outgrowth of a company that I worked at while I was in college. And so I worked at a company called iProfile while I was in college from 2002 to 2006. Uh, that offered something very similar to what Discover Org offered when we launched. And the concept behind both of those companies, and we actually ended up acquiring iProfile um, in 2015, but the concept behind both of those companies was, can you provide sellers and marketers really high quality information on the companies that they're targeting and on the people at those companies who make the buying decisions? Can you serve it up in a, in a SaaS platform uh, and charge an annual subscription to it as this information is constantly changing. And so we launched the business to kind of go after a market that wasn't being served by the company uh, that I worked by iProfile, where I worked in college. And the company launched. We had our first com- our first customer within a, within a couple of months, um, continued to reinvest in the business, and we continued to stay focused on this idea of providing really, really high-quality information on companies and the professionals at those companies. Now, the and we scaled that to close to 5 million professionals at 250,000 companies. It was incredibly high-quality information, but what our customers kept asking us for was more. We want more professionals, more companies. We just need more. We love Discover Org, but we need more. And for the last two decades, Zoom Info was building a platform that provided incredible breadth of information. So now that's like 100 million uh, professionals at 20 million companies. And what we said was, is there an opportunity here to really bring quality and quantity together in one best of breed platform? And so we made the acquisition of Zoom Info in February of 2019. We brought the systems and technology that we had built over at Discover Org to, uh, to cleanse and maintain data at really high accuracy. We brought that all over to Zoom Info. We're able to get the, the breadth of the incredible breadth of coverage that Zoom Info had built. And so we were, you know, we embarked to give sell- sellers and marketers what they always wanted from a plat- from a prospecting and outreach and sales and customer success platform, which was they wanted quality and they wanted coverage. Uh, and putting the two companies together uh, made it possible for us to offer that. Wow. And um, the, yeah, I mean, it's interesting because the Zoom info name is one that I feel like I've seen forever. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, like you just, you see your own name in there a lot of times on on searches. And, um, but it makes sense then that that's where the breadth comes from is that they they had 
they had a pretty broad data set. And then uh, with what you'd built to be able to just make that data a lot more useful, because obviously for sales teams, it's, uh, you know, time is money. And if, if they can, if they can have clean data with, with helpful insights to close deals, then that's going to be a lot more valuable for them. So that's, that's uh, that explains partly what what's been uh, fuel to the growth. But I would I, any other like key insights in terms of you know from that thirteen year period from when you initially uh, started the business to taking it public. Um, what you know, right out of the I guess one one thing to even start with is did you when did you feel like we're on to something and um, was was there kind of any any sort of iteration to get to, to product market fit or did, did you have sort of a scalable formula for right, right out of the gates? I mean, yeah, I think like, like most, like most startup CEOs are the best ones. I think I always felt like it was a house of cards, like that the whole thing could like fall apart at any moment. And that really all that was like keeping this afloat was you know, me coming in every day and working as hard as I possibly could uh, to make the business a little bit better and a little bit better. And honestly, the first time I felt any like real true validation was at the IPO, like the day after the IPO. And, you know, <laughs> that's, a, that's a long trek of uh, feeling like, you, like you're not sure. <laughs> and by the way, like I feel like that often today too. Like today I'm trying to project out, you know, over 30% growth for the next, for the next decade. And so, you know, you're making bets on a vision for the future and plugging in people into that vision. And so you often still feel like, you know, do I have that right? And, you know, I second, third guess decisions that I make all the time. And it's pretty healthy because it always kind of gets me to the right point. But I think all along, you know, the, the best story I have for this, Sean, is um, our business was about $25 million of ARR, and it was profitable, and it was growing 60%, 70% a year, and we had, you know, 100 employees. And I remember going to, like, a networking event in our community, and I met a couple other CEOs of businesses, and I remember meeting one and he was telling me how his business was growing 40% and he was in this like interesting space. And I remember thinking like, Oh man, it must be so nice to be like the CEO of a business that's growing 40%. It doesn't have like all of the problems that my business has. Uh-huh. And I would like go look at discover org at the time and go like, Oh, you know, like marketing's messed up. I need a new leader and customer success. The platform went down last week. I don't have the right software developers. I'm behind on hiring salespeople. Like my business is a mess and it's growing like in spite of itself. Like these guys who are CEOs and they're like 40% growing companies, they just have their like feet kicked up and everything's running smoothly and nothing's as stressful as my life is. And the truth of the matter is number one, like that feeling should never go away because if you are growing your business, there's always something you're not doing well enough. And, and then second, like every business owner uh, and every, every CEO, every CMO, every head of sales feels the same way. They're playing whack-a-mole all day. 
Um, you know, and so, you know, I spent most of my professional career playing whack-a-mole against the next most important thing. Um, so, but that's I think awesome. that's, that's been pretty healthy. <laughs> yeah. So, so is that, so you said, uh, earlier that, that it was about kind of getting better, the business gets better every day. Was it really like those improvements were just so obvious and like, Oh my God, we need to fix this. We need to fix this. Or, um, was there anything else that you did to kind of drive that continuous improvement of all parts of the business or was it pretty reactive to obvious things? So I had a cold call from this guy in Fusion soft. He said, look, marketing automation is a little bit different than what you're doing. So just come to this webinar and see what it is. And I went to the webinar and I walked out going, oh my goodness, like I didn't even know that this world of automation existed for going to market. And I bet that there's a lot that I can do with this from marketing automation to sales team automation um, to follow up uh, automation. And so I dove into that software and then I automated our entire go to market motion. It was the first time we automated it. You know, today, even today, when we have 1,300 employees, um, a lot of that initial automation still exists in the way we go to market. And so, for example, if you, if I sent you an email and uh, and you said, "Hey, right now is not a good time. Can you follow up with me and in June?" and I'd go like, "Okay, sure." And I set uh, I set actually an automation date. Send this guy my, "Hey, you told me to follow up with you in June." Email, you know, May fifteenth. And so May fifteenth, it sends an automatic reply to this guy. Hey, John, we, we talked months ago. You said to reach out to you in May. Uh, would love to get that 30 minutes that we talked about. Or after a demo, uh, after a demo, I found that a lot of our our sales reps, and there was two of us, you know, three of us at the time, but our sales reps would miss things and they wouldn't follow up with their prospects as diligently as they should be. And if a competitor got into uh, into the opportunity and they did a better job of managing those opportunities and following up, that we would lose the account. And so we created automation. So as soon as you uh, finished a demo, you hit a button in Infusionsoft and it started sending, it would send them an email the next day that said, hey, it was great to talk to you. I wanted to send you a case study. And then the next day, hey, I wanted to send you some additional content that I think you'd find useful. And so from day one, we were really using uh, email marketing and then coupling that with sales and marketing automation to generate the pipeline that we needed to grow the business. And that was the sole source of how we how we went to market from zero to you know, probably just over $30 million of ARR. And that's when we shifted the model a bit to start doing SEO and SEM and digital marketing. But up until that point, it was a combination of really good sales automation and really good marketing automation. Wow. And then you were able to just see like a, a, the increase in close rates or more... more- more efficiency and just number of conversations or what? Yeah, sort of, we, how, totally. Both. Like, <laughs> both. I mean, so we increased our close rate. And at the time, um, when I think back to those days, we were competing really with um, kind of one other provider who was offering something that was more directly competitive with us. It was a company called Rain King. Um, and they had gotten a bunch of venture capital funding and had a sales team that was five times the size of ours. And the automation helped us play like way ahead of them. Because, you know, my, my five sales reps could manage 
five times as many opportunities because of the automation as one sales rep at Rain King. And so as, every time you added an additional sales rep, uh, because you hit like capacity on how much an, a, your existing sales team could handle, you got the equivalent of sort of five of your competitors' sales reps. And so we were able to build this incredibly efficient, profitable business, which put us in a, in a position later on to be able to do M&A in a way that we wouldn't otherwise have been able to do if the business was like barely break even or losing money. Um, because we built this incredibly efficient engine, it put us in a place to do a lot of acquisitions that, that helped fuel our growth. So were you bootstrapped through this whole thing or, or yeah. did you raise money at some point in there? So we're bootstrapped through 2014. So we found the business wow. in 07. We uh, grew in a bootstrapped way through 2014 when we brought our first uh, outside capital in. Uh, it was wow. a firm called TA Associates. Wow, that's that's amazing! Congratulations on that on the grind. I mean, it may, that makes sense. And what you're saying is that you can you can grind and do that profitably if you uh, if you got the right systems in place. You know, grinding is like uh, it's it's um, when you know no other when you know nothing else. Uh, mm-hmm. And at the time, like you know, I thought working on 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 Zoom Info was a much easier task than working on law school. Like right. really is just because my art, my like, talents lined up better, uh, mm-hmm. but it was much more, uh, mu- much less of a grind than mm-hmm. it was than law school was. So, uh, yeah. And yeah. did you did you actually find it fun then? Totally. Yes. Yeah. I mean, in the moment, it w- you know in the moment, I'm not sure it was fun because you always had some bigger aspiration than where you were at the moment. Right. And so even when big chips like fell for you, you were like, yeah, okay, great. But it's not the thing that I'm trying to get to, but right, awesome. right. I'm glad that happened. Biggest deal of the year, biggest deal in the company's history. Awesome. What, you know, what else do we need to do to get to the place that we need to go? And so right. it is just kind of like, you know, today we're signing, um, we're signing you, you know larger deals than we ever have in the history of our business. We're bringing on more customers than we ever have in the history of our business, and you're still looking at it and going at like, yeah, that's great, but you know, it's just a piece of the puzzle for where we're going. So it's you know, I read an interesting post by Jason Lemkin once, and he said someone asked um, our founders and CEOs of startups happy. And he was like, they're fulfilled, they're excited, they're engaged about their business, but it's just too hard to be happy. There's too uh-huh. much pressure to grow and pressure from your investors and obligation to your, uh, your staff that it's just too hard to be like really, really happy right. or to really be having fun. But there are moments in there that, you know, bring up our nostalgic. Sure. Yeah, and you look back and 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 probably you look back fondly on it, even if in the moment sometimes there was smoke coming out of your ears. Totally. <laughs> yes. Um, so, I mean, it sounds to me like that that really, um, you know, fit, you filled a market gap from the beginning. You you were able to just go and and aggressively grab that the the market that was available, and that that you weren't the only solution out there as you're doing it. But it, but it's but probably. Probably the combination of a of a good solution and a and a and a good process for for going out and capturing business. And then you mentioned that that you got to a point where you started to layer in things like SEO. What um, how how did that work? Would would people like 
search for a name and and then and then you'd be able to introduce them to uh, a lot more information about that person and other people like them or what how do where are they searching for a specific solution? Yeah, so a little bit of both. Um, so we optimize, and so now I'll mold some of the Discover Org and the Zoom Info side. Um, on the Zoom Info side, they they were really well optimized for you know you're looking for a company, you're looking for a person, and they ranked really high on Google search results to find those people. And if you wanted additional contact information or information on those people, you could uh, you could get a free trial, and then they had a motion. Uh, we had a motion where we'd work those free trials into paid customers. On the Discover Org side, we were much more focused on key um, kind of keyword strategies. And so what were buyers going to be searching for on uh, potential buyers be searching for on the web to come to uh, where we would we would be well positioned in front of them. And so if you were looking for sales leads or sales process optimization and um, how to go to market or the can spam act, we would rank for those terms and we'd write really great content for those terms. And so buyers would come to us that way. Uh, and then we spent money on SEM. And so we were buying Google ads on a variety of different keywords on branded and unbranded keywords. And that became a bigger part of our strategy as well. And, you know, you tracked each one of these different channels in a really specific way where I wanted to always see I always wanted to see, look, how much money did we spend? And then how much money of the leads that we generated against that spend did we generate in revenue across any number of those channels? And um, and then, you know, over time, because the leads you generate in January from SEM don't all close in January. Uh, but what, you're, what I was always uh, hopeful for was that the spend that we spent to generate those leads in January would be solved for also in January. But over time, we'd get up to a five x return on that spend. Okay, wow, that's a that's a pretty that's a pretty good return on a spend. <laughs> I mean, it makes it a no brainer to make that spend. I mean, yeah, remember, like that's on the marketing, you know, marketing specific spend, and so there's also all sorts of other spend that has to happen for a deal to come to fruition. You're paying your sales reps, the platform has to work, all of that stuff. But on pure like dollars out from marketing against dollars brought in from that uh, from that outlay, we always look to get a 5x return. And so we'd go to events, like somebody would come to me and say, hey, I think it's really important that we go to this, uh, we go to this, the sales event or the sales conference. And I go, okay, what's the sponsorship fee? It's, uh, you know, it's 20 grand. Great. You commit to bringing in $100,000 of revenue from going to this conference. And I'm all about it. Like we'll 100% spend the money and the, the frame of the change in frame of mind for folks, when you just tell them that they're like out there at that conference and they know they need to get to a hundred thousand dollars. And so they need like on average, you know, five deals and they're just looking for that opportunity versus, you know, go to a conference and you can get kind of comfortable going, well, our signage was here and a couple mm-hmm, people right. stopped by. And it was like, no, you're going to go there and you're going to find $100,000 or we're never going to do another one of these things. And right, your credibility right. is on the line. Yeah. Uh, and so, that's, that, that's that bootstrap mindset, which is great. And it keeps you efficient and even after you raise money. Yep, totally. <laughs> so was there any uh, major challenges that come to mind as you were, as you were going through this process of driving growth, even, even in up, up to recent years, like where, where you had to overcome a big major hurdle? 
Yeah, like a couple come to mind. At some point, that email marketing engine that we had built just stopped working. And so going into 2015, you could put you could put a hundred leads into the top of the funnel, and I would get one appointment from those leads. And so at some point I said, okay, well, great. That's a model that's working. Let's just put as many leads into the top of the funnel as possible. And so we went out and we like bought lists and, you know, today this is so different for us because we just use Zoom info. But back then we weren't profiling the same buyers as we were targeting. Um, So we went out, I bought lists from a variety of different people. I put them into the top of the funnel. None of them were... um, None of the, the places where I bought data from were particularly reputable. And so it just demolished our email deliverability. And when your email delivery, uh, deliverability gets hurt that way, you're in a heap of trouble. Because not only does your email marketing stop working, but your, your sales team's ability to conversate with their prospects who are engaged in buying decisions disappears. So now here I am with this stupid strategy um, that blew up in my face. And I've got sellers like basically lined up outside my door, like, hey, my emails are not getting through. Hey, my customer said they're not getting my emails. Hey, what's going on with our emails? And the like the weight of that like responsibility for that bad decision that led us to this point was like pretty immense. And then you're like, well I built my entire go-to-market strategy on email marketing, and all of a sudden, it's like it's gone away. And so we had to do a lot of work to repair our uh, email reputation. And at one point, um, there was, we got on a, a blacklist. And that blacklist, like the, the pervasiveness of that blacklist was incredible. Like it blocked us all over <laughs> the world, including our LinkedIn company profile page got taken down. Like for some reason that was connected to this like blacklist. And so I literally hired a private investigator and said, go find me the CEO of this company, like wherever he is, because it was very difficult to find any point of contact at this company that basically runs email deliverability in the world. And so they did, they found him. They're like, he lives in Monaco they found him. They said he li- he lives in Monaco, and uh, I was like, "Great! Someone needs to like tell me where he's going to be, and I'm going to get on a flight and go to Monaco and beg him to take us off of the list because it was the only like solution we had." Right? Wow. Um, and, and it ended up we ended up uh, we had a a, con- a mutual contact who was <laughs> able to talk to uh, to talk to the company and take us get us off the list after. So you didn't Three need to weeks. go to Monaco. Didn't need to go to Monaco, but I was <laughs> wouldn't be that bad. I was ready. <laughs> wouldn't be that bad of a place to go. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I, uh, I've I've been. Uh, I had a business where I got blacklisted from advertising on Google, and um, it was literally I I it was like shut down the business or figure out someone to talk to so that I can buy ads and keep this business going. And um, yeah, I know exactly. It was like every day dedicated to solving this one problem. It, it could be super painful. So. Super painful. And like uh, when you're trying to solve this email deliverability problem too, like it, it's hard to get the like ground truth information about what's actually happening mm-hmm. um, because so many companies are using so many different email systems. 
And so it's like, wait, why am I being blocked by these guys, but not these guys? And so you're trying to figure out, and it was, you know, it was a very painful, it was very painful. Wow. No, that's a, I mean, but you clearly overcame it. So that's good. <laughs> um, so real quick, I, I, maybe just a, a, a pretty high level, just overview of how you guys are organized for growth now and, and sort of process wise, it's, we've, a lot of it's been sort of backwards looking up to this point, but you know, what, what teams do you have? You have marketing sales, customer success. Um, what, how, how does the sort of process work there? Yeah. Let me walk you through that. So today um, we have, a sales team, a marketing team, an account management team, a customer success team. And the sales team, we have uh, we do a, we have a lot of specialization, and so you have uh, inbound SDRs. Those are sales development reps who just work on leads that come in inbound. Um, we have a ninety second SLA. So if you go to our website and you fill out a form, one of those inbound SDRs will call you back within ninety seconds. We have outbound SDRs, so they're just calling, doing outbound cold calling. We have SWAT SDRs. These are SDRs who work uh, warm leads, and so people who um, people who didn't uh, fill out a form, but uh, did come to your website and and uh, bounce around the pricing page or the solutions page, so they've had some interaction, but they haven't uh, raised their hand for a free trial or something like that. Then, uh, so they're generating appointments for a team of account executives. Those account executives are broken out into uh, three groups. And so you could be working SMB leads, mid-market leads, or enterprise leads. Uh, So the SDR sets a demo for an account executive. The account executive works that demo to close. And depending on the segment that you're in from an account executive perspective, once you close the deal, you, you may own it for six months. Uh, in, in actually two thirds of the instances, you own them for you own that account for six months, and so you have an opportunity to upsell an organization, or you know, let's say a customer agrees to a lower package, then uh, but you think or less users. Hey, I want to start with five users, even though I have ten users. Then the account executive is incentivized to bring the deal in with five users, and then over the next six months, upgrade them to the rest of the team. Um, and then, uh, and then after the six months, it gets handed over to an account management team. I should back up a little bit. But when the deal gets closed, we bring in a learning and development team. That team includes integrations and engineers and basically training folks. And so they train the customer on the platform. They get them integrated in their CRM or marketing automation or sales automation tools. And then, and then the account manager comes in six months later. That account manager is just respons- is responsible for the renewal of the account and also responsible for, you know, upsells or additional features and functionality or users we may sell the account. Depending on the size of your account, you would also have a customer success manager or a customer success engineer. That customer success engineer is just responsible for keeping you happy. They're monitoring your the health score of the account, which is based on a variety of different factors. You know, the biggest one is just usage. So if a company goes from 80% of the users using it on average and it drops to 60%, there's a playbook that gets in a remediation playbook that gets sent out to the customer success manager and they're working to bring that usage back up. Um, If there's a support issue, a support ticket that's been sitting for over 15 days, the customer success manager is getting involved and trying to figure out a workaround for that or or seeing where where the fix is coming on 
uh, in the product and, and keeping communication up with the customer. And so they're just all about success. They don't have a, there's not a renewal. Um, there's no variable comp from a renewal or upsell perspective. They just keep the accounts happy and okay. they're teamed up with account managers. Okay. But so the integration or the kind of learning and development part is not customer success. They're, they're, they're just more of a, a, a an onboarding phase. Yes. Okay. Exactly. Cool. And then the marketing you also mentioned, and I, I assume the marketing is really what's driving those inbound leads that the, yeah, the marketing, is dri- marketing is generating about 15,000 hot end QLs a month um, mm-hmm. that the, uh, the inbound SDRs are, are uh, converting. Now, cool. For what it's worth, that's not how it was always, right? Like, right, right. <laughs> at, at the very beginning, the account executive closed the deal and then onboarded the users and then was the account manager at renewal time. And then at some point, we migrated to just having account managers after an account executive closed the deal and the account manager would be responsible for renewal and upsell during the year. Uh, and then we added, you know, we added customer success managers and then a learning and development team. And so all of these kind of came came after. And the way there's actually a great book I, I read early on was called The E-Myth, which is now that it's a great book. And um, and if you if you like consume it and get it stuck in your head, it's a great tool for uh, prioritizing your day, <laughs> because if you find yourself working on something that should be passed off. That you're like, basically the concept is if you're an expert at something, become an expert at everything in your business and then give it to train somebody else to do it. And if you become an expert at something and you're still doing it every day, uh, you need to figure out what I'm, what you're doing from a hiring perspective to bring somebody else in to be able to focus on that. Um, And so we did, you know, we did a, we did a lot of that growing the company. Mm -hmm. So when you describe this like really sophisticated system that you Clearly, as you talked about, you know, make the business better every day, keep finding those improvements. This is seems to be an output of that. Do you think what you have in place now would have worked in the early days, or is it more of a a big team setup and that's that's it, or is it you just hadn't figured it out at that point in the early days? I think specialization always works. Um, specialization for our business has always been a key to success. Now, um, it would have been really heavy for a small company to operate this way. Um, and I think it would be now in every one of these instances, we see ROI from the investments and we track it really closely. And so we're not going to add an additional customer success manager unless we can see a corresponding return on investment for that. And so what we're saying is, okay, look, we added these five and we're doing experiments constantly. We added these five customer success managers supporting a mid-market team. How did the renewals and upsells against those accounts trend after we added those customer success managers? And if you see the right trend line there, then you can start making the case to add more and more and more. Um, And so the organization as it exists today, every investment we make, we're tracking the ROI against. And so it works for us today. In the, in the early days, you know, maybe the system wasn't as, as complicated. There weren't integrations to do. It was a pretty simple system to get onboarded onto. Um, we were selling in some instances like unlimited licenses. So there wasn't like an, an, an upsell ability in those days. And so you really didn't need like three people on one account. 
uh, we didn't have that many accounts. And so an account manager could manage, you know, the, the 10 or 20 accounts that they had. So I think it's just different stages, but I think the, the idea of specialization as you mature is, uh, works everywhere. Mm-hmm. So one of the things you, you touched on there is talking about experimentation and, um, it's, it's interesting is because experimentation is so, so accepted now as something in a business to consumer business that you, that you have so much data coming through that, that it's, you know, you should be experimenting and improving kind of all those customer touch points. It tends to be a lot harder in kind of a sales driven business. And I think part of it is because salespeople themselves are somewhat variable. How do you, how, what do you think you've figured out in terms of experimentation in your business that, that most kind of sales driven organizations uh, d- don't realize? Um, so we metric ev- like literally everything. And so from the number of calls you make to the number of calls that come into you to how many emails you send every day to how many docu-signs you send out to how many docu-signs get returned, we have a daily pacing for, uh, for, for our retention team and our um, sales team. And so every day, we know exactly the dollars we need to sell across the different teams to hit our target at the end of the month. Um, and we've embedded data scientists inside of our go-to-market organization. Um, and so you have a half a dozen data scientists who are constantly looking at all of these different metrics and how they're changing and where we have opportunities for, for lift. And we just went through uh, a major revamp of the way we think about our account management function where what we did was we brought all the data into, we brought all data on customer interactions to the platform, downloads from our platform, integrations connected or not connected, basically every activity a customer does. We brought that all into um, a Snowflake database. We layered in all of the Zoom Info data so we knew the size of the companies, how fast they were growing, whether they got funding or not, what projects and initiatives they were working on. And we, basically, and we created a system that, that when there were changes in a customer's behavior or interaction with our platform or with our company, based on those changes, we would institute a playbook for customer success managers or account managers to go run. And so, like I was saying, if usage goes down, there's a playbook for that. Support tickets go up, there's a playbook for that. If an integration gets disconnected, an engineer calls you to fix that. Like there are every sort of like, not every, but many of the things that happen to our customers and users today that impact their health with our business are triggering off a set of actions that our customer success managers and account managers are then, uh, then taking. And then compliance with those actions is being tracked. And then we're feeding, we're looking at how it affects those accounts. So did it, did that remediation plan increase usage? Um, and we're monitoring that, you know, constantly, but that, you know, we're a fairly, we're a decent sized company today, but that is a new, uh, that is a new addition. That's that level of sophistication is new to our company. Yeah. But it's interesting. I, I, I smell e-myth there. (laughs) It's, uh, you know, like I think once once you document the playbook, that rep- 
repeatable playbook that that generates a consistent output, then you can work on improving that playbook. And that's that's part of that experimentation to to improve that you're talking about. And I think that's the problem in most sort of Wild West sales organizations that that there's not enough documented playbook for doing things to have any kind of consistent way to run experiment. You know, individuals might be experimenting, but spreading that learning across a sales organization, it, it's really tough when everybody's taking a different approach. Yep. And the first time I really, I really appreciated the rhythm of the business. We, we hired a CFO in 2015 and he came in and built all these dashboards around the business. And so you could see like the heartbeat of the business every day. And he was like, Henry, the business has a rhythm. Like you do these things, they generate these things, it generates those things, then you generate revenue. And so my, my job is to make sure you understand and we all understand the rhythm of, those biz- of the business and we can start pinpointing where there are issues and remediate them and remediate them before they become problems. Right. So do you have any kind of traditional tools and how you're approaching that in terms of like, uh, like a, um, you know, using OKRs or North Star metric? Um, now, when I say traditional tools, I guess it would be more like um, tools that are, that are used by a lot of companies to kind of uh, drive some of these things. Or is it more just the way that you've developed that, that dashboard to get the, the heartbeat and the documented processes and, and that sort of replaces the need for things like OKRs. Yeah, it's basically, we've kind of built a lot of these ourselves and we've, and so every organization does have their own set of metrics that they're managing towards, but the, the, the ways that, that those metrics come together or are reported are, you know, each business, each business unit kind of looks at them differently, but most, most of the data that we're collecting, we're pumping into a Snowflake database, and then we're doing analysis against that Snowflake database in uh, in a visualization tool to understand really like what is wh- what the visualization on those metrics are. Um, and then we we've also we've also uh, leveraged pretty heavily here our FP&A uh, financial planning and analysis teams. Where when we first hired a CFO, I was like, I don't know why we need a CFO. Uh, we have a controller. They're just doing the numbers. That's all we need. My board was like, yeah, you just don't know what a good CFO can do for you. And so when we brought in a professional CFO and I, and when we brought him in, I said, look, I don't need someone who just does the numbers. I need someone who's helping me understand the business and can be strategic around where we're making investments and where the business is doing well or where it's doing poorly. And so the finance department really became a key partner to the business and its ability to give us metrics and analysis on what was going on in the business and helping us really see things that you couldn't, you really didn't get to see just by looking across the floor. So, so an out there question that I was just, just going to hit you with is that if it feels like so much of what you're doing is really great guidance, like I'm, I'm excited for the business to business uh, companies that are listening in on the podcast today. Have you, given that your customers are are B two B companies, have you have you kind of uh, done a lot of content marketing around around the systems that you've built to scale your uh, growth organization? Or because um, it feels like that would be a really attractive way to generate some of those inbound leads. Totally, that is. So if you go on our website and you go to the recipes for success portion of our website, we're basically outlining all of the key processes that we're using to go to market. And, you know, we're kind of, 
a little bit late to this, um, but we've made a, a concerted effort to make transparent all of the different ways that we're going to market so our customers and other B2B businesses can really understand what we're doing and how it works and they can replicate it for themselves. Excellent. And I think as you touched on earlier in the conversation that, um, you know, you, you get to a certain point where uh, w- even if you're late to the the party on some things, it's like, oh, gosh, there's another thing that we can uncover that can potentially accelerate the business. So it's it's almost like a, an exciting discovery when you when you think of other things as opposed to a, oh, I can't believe we've been missing that one. Well, it actually like the way you respond to that. So I, I have a a coach that I, that I talked to like every, every other week. And he took me through this assessment called an ELI assessment. And it looks at like your emotions and how you respond to things. And a great leader, they call it a level five leader. They see something like that and they go, this is a great opportunity for us. Like we haven't been doing it, but can you imagine the lift that we're going to get when we start doing this thing, like amazing, our business is doing so well, we're not even doing this thing really well. Um, And like a level one leader goes like, we suck, we're never going to be good. I can't believe we can't even do content well. Like, how can we ever succeed if this is the way our content looks? And it is really like, you know, the same input, and your output against that makes a big difference. Right. Oh, that's awesome. So, so many more questions I would love to ask, but I uh, want to let you get back to, to running the business. Um, one last question that I'd, I'd like to dig into is, you know, you've gone through so much learning clearly and, and taken it to, to such a great level at this point. Is there anything that you feel like you've learned in the last year or two that really stands out as a, an understanding of how growth works that, yes. uh, that you can share with the listeners? Yes. Great. Messaging is so, so, so important. The way you message the product that you sell, the, the direction that you're going, um, the value to your end customers, spending time on how you message that is endlessly valuable. And I didn't really appreciate that until this year when um, I started doing the roadshow for the IPO. And you could talk about some part of our business one way and nobody cares. And you can talk about it another way and everybody goes, oh my goodness, you're doing that? And it's like, oh, you know, like don't do yourself a disservice to not talk about important things in the best way possible. So iterate on the way you talk about your products, the value your customers get, the way you talk about your competitors, like iterate and iterate and iterate on those things. Because when you get them right and you're able to paint a picture with that messaging that's you know bigger than your first iteration on it, it is endlessly valuable. Yeah, it's really interesting you say that. I, I launched a new product today, a, a learning product, and we we kind of wrote our messaging and and released it about a month ago. And I said, I don't want to launch right now. I want to do multiple pitches every day to my network of this new education product until I figure out what resonates, then go back, refine all the messaging, and then then we can release. So we literally did kind of the, the first kind of publishing of messaging and, and promotion today. And uh, it's amazing how 
how much evolution there was in the last month as a, as things that seem so obvious when I communicated them, you could just see people, people are like, I don't know what the hell you're talking about. And then slight tweak. And they're like, Oh my gosh, this sounds amazing. And so all, enough of those conversations, I was, I'm sure there's a ton of room for improvement still, but it's uh, that, that, I'm not surprised that on a roadshow where you have so many conversations that you you could start honing in on, uh, on on how do you describe it in a way that gets people excited. Yep, and then you know the thing to 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 remember there too is that it doesn't doesn't just stop at where you how you describe your product or your business. Like the way you describe a new initiative to your team, the messaging you use to persuade your direct team to about your vision for the company or the direction that you're going or why you're doing something, why you're doing one thing and not another thing and how you're prioritizing. Like messaging internally is also really, really important. So you should, you have an important, something important that you're releasing to the team, really thinking through how you present that and how you message it is also really valuable. Awesome. Yeah. I'm a, I'm a big fan. I'm sure if you've, if you've read E-Myth, I'm sure you've read a bunch of other stuff, but uh, Cialdini's Influence, have you read that one? I have not read that one, but that's I will. Like the, that's like the, um, almost the, the Bible for uh, the, the growth community. I, I, I first heard about it when I moved to Silicon Valley in 2007. And, uh, and yeah, it's, it's definitely up there at the top of, of my books in terms of, um, how how to communicate in a way that that drives the desired action uh, that you're trying to drive for people. So yep. that's a good one to take a look at. I'm well, buying th- it right now. Awesome. Well, thank <laughs> you so much, Henry, for for opening up and sharing how you got to where you are. Um, I, I know it's not a finish line. It's a it's just a new starting line uh, being a public company, but it's a, it is definitely an amazing milestone, and uh, it's it, it's a and it's an exciting story that. I was excited to be able to ask you about and share with the audience that listens to the Breakout Growth Podcast. Well, thank you for having me on here, Sean. I was glad to, to get to spend the time with you today. Absolutely. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in. Thanks for listening to the Breakout Growth Podcast. Please take a moment to leave us a review on your favorite podcast platform. And while you're at it, subscribe so you never miss a show. Until next week.